Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, an update on Russia's war on Ukraine as the daughter of Vladimir Putin's closest ally is killed and Ukrainians strike the headquarters of the Russian Black Sea Fleet as Ukrainians prepare to celebrate their independence from the Soviet Union on August the 24th. But first, joining us as he does on most Mondays is Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, always a pleasure indeed. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence, and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And we're a proud Farnborough International Air Show media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading air show was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, thanks very much again for joining us. Um, over the past 25 or so years, uh, annually, you've put out the defense um, uh, primer or primer, depending on uh, however <laughs> folks pronounce it. Uh, you're, down, uh, you're at version 2.2. Uh, talk to us about uh, the document, uh, because it is a really uh, a guidebook uh, for those who are either experienced in defense or not experienced uh, in defense. Talk to us about what it is you're trying to accomplish with the document and also what the key takeaways are in this edition. Well, yeah, Vago. I mean, I think part of this was just, it's literally providing analysts, uh, planners, you know, anybody who's interested in defense with kind of, hey, here, here are some basic tools, resources to help you come up to speed on how this, how this whole sector works. Um, it's primarily U.S. focused. Um, I'd love at some point to sit down and try and do one for some of the other major defense markets in the world. Uh, that's on my list of things to do this fall. But, you know, the point is, um, I remember when I was on the buy side as an analyst, if someone came up to me and they did it from time to time, it's like, hey, can you tell me about how the petrochemical market works or how the trucking market works or how biotechnology works, you know? Who are the players? You know, what's supply and demand? What are government regulations? Blah, blah, blah. Um, these are daunting tasks. And so the purpose of the permit was really just to kind of help the people come up to speed. I wanted to move beyond the, you know, what's the difference between an F-16 and an F-18 to more on um, the universe of contractors, um, the U.S. defense budget, how it works, some of the key personalities uh, that matter in defense, and, and probably most importantly is what are the resources uh, that, that people can tap into? Everything from budget justification books to congressional research service reports to books, think tanks, uh, your program, other resources that, that people ought to be tapping into to, to not just only come up to speed, but stay abreast of what's happening in the defense sector. So um, it's I try and make it a PowerPoint presentation uh, as opposed to, you know, 150 pages of dense single space text with pictures in it, um, a lot of graphs, a lot of data. And, you know, it's something you always sit back and go, it's version 2.2, because every time I look at it, you know, you finish and go, oh, I should add that or I should change this or, or play with that. Um, I didn't do one last year because there really wasn't an out-year defense spending plan with the new administration 
this year when the DOD releases its green book um, and, you know, there's some good out your data to play with. Um, it's easy to make charts that kind of show at least, at least where DOD wants to go with spending. And of course, that's going to change as it always does with, uh, you know, <laughs> new, new plans, new administrations and, and whatever Congress does with the budget too. What's new this year that wasn't in last year's edition? I tried to pick a little bit more on um, appropriations and authorization bills. Uh, th that's something that, again, people can be very flippant headlines like appropriators have, you know, Senate Appropriation uh, Defense Subcommittee released its mark of the uh, FY23 defense budget. And, you know, your initial impression is, okay, you know, but then that number is different than what the DOD released and what what the authorization committees have been working with. So it's really just kind of walk through how these different appropriations bills match up against, for example, what the authorizers are looking at. Um, I tried to spend a little bit more time on what I think are generic strategic challenges um, for the sector, as opposed to individual contractor issues. Um, and that kind of ripped off something that I I just read um, Richard Rommel's new book on strategy. And, um, you know, I think he, we can talk about that a little bit more, but I think uh, as a framing way to think about national defense strategy, contractor strategies, um, he, he really has some very good insights. And uh, I, I tried to fold some of that thinking into the, the primer this year too. And, and talk uh, a little bit about Richard Rommelt's new book. He is one of the nation's foremost uh, strategists, a close friend of Andy Marshall's as well, uh, the late great um, uh, founding director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Um, what are the important things to bear in mind? You know, our mutual friend Steve Grunman uh, of the Atlantic Council and Grunman Advisory uh, wrote a great column in Avweek in which he, he quoted uh, the book. What, what, what is it that people should take away from the book from your perspective? Well, I think his central, you know, this was his first book on good strategy, bad strategy. <clears throat> you know, he makes the point that strategy is not saying you're going to grow sales at 10% annually or your margin is going to increase, you know, from 13% to 15%. You know, the first step is to really analyze and understand what's the problem? What, 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 what's the situation like? What's going on here? And I think in his latest book, The Crux, there, there's so you know I, I still like old hardcover books because I can underline things and you know this was one of those books that I go back and I, I don't know how many different passages I underline in this, but he also has some really interesting military examples of of kind of understanding the crux of a problem and he talks about for example you know the 1980s concept of kind of really late 70s, I guess, follow on forces attack for uh, NATO and the Warsaw Pact that, you know, you were going to be dealing with the steamroller of um, Warsaw Pact forces if you were in uh, okay, for Europe. Uh, you were going to be dealing with this steamroller of Russian military forces in, um, in, in Central Europe if war ever broke out. And, and so the crux of the strategic issue that he felt NATO successfully address was how do you attack deep into Warsaw Pact territory to, to degrade these units and the flow of logistics before they reach the front line. And, and so there, there are examples um, that he draws from corporations. I think, you know, to Steve's point, and Steve kind of amplified some of the things that um, Ronald has talked about innovation and technology. 
that are very applicable to not just the U.S. Department of Defense, but defense ministries around the world. And it's just a wealth of insight on corporations, um, strategic positioning, competition. So I highly recommend the book. Um, and uh, you read, uh, just very briefly, uh, a book by uh, Richard Overy uh, recently, yeah. the great British uh, historian. Um, you know, give, give us a sense of that, because, you know, it, it, part, one of the key takeaways was about the size of armies uh, for you. I'm reading Richard Overy's book on blood and ruins, uh, the last imperial war, 1931 to 1945. And I, you know, we were talking about this before you started to record the show today because um, I'm still in the early stages of this, but I think it's just a reminder about history looks like a very neat set of events in hindsight, <laughs> but I think what Overy does a good job of is saying, here's what it looked like in 1938 or 1939 or 1940 or 41 and how, you know, on one hand, there are expectations. It's just how chaotic war strategic plans can really be. Looking backward, you know, in history may make things look neat and orderly. Looking forward, it's just how many, how many different options and how many, how wrong people were in their initial assessments about what was going to happen. And, you know, we've seen that this year, um, multiple examples of expectations for Russo-Ukraine war and how they've panned out. And I just think it's a very important reminder when we think about defense um, and global security and, and how contractors ought to be thinking about the world, that it's it's just going to be inherently unpredictable. You can try and reduce some of that uncertainty through agility and, and being able to pivot, but also understanding where some of these inflection points may emerge. And I, I just, it, it's resonated, um, you know, at a time, I, I suppose it's a beach read. I'm not at the beach right now, but if I can get that thing done by September, I'll probably have more to say about it too. And uh, very quickly, we've got about a minute and a half left. What is it the audience should be focused on uh, over the course of the coming week? Obviously, on Wednesday, everybody uh, wants to wish uh, Ukraine a happy Independence Day uh, on what is the anniversary of the country's independence from the Soviet Union, uh, but also, sadly, the six-month anniversary of Russia's war on, on Ukraine. But walk us through what the uh, key events over the course of the week are the audience should be paying attention to. Well, well obviously, you know, Congress is still on recess. Um, you know, until until September. <clears throat> so not much on the budget this week. Um, AUSA was holding an event on uh, countering small unmanned aircraft systems. CSIS held an event this morning that I'm sure the recording is available on the Taiwan Strait crisis, the latest, uh, you know, Chinese exercises and kind of what the implications of that may be. But they're also holding an event on the 24th on future Army vertical lift with the program executive officer uh, and Army Futures Command that I think will be interesting. Uh, and with uh, Major General Wally Rugen uh, is who you're talking about? Absolutely, um, which is obviously an important program for both Lockheed Martin and Textron. Um, Mitchell Institute is holding an event with the PEO, uh, uh, Rear Admiral Scott Pompano, I may not be pronouncing his name correctly, um, but he's the PEO for Strategic Submarines and Columbia is a program that's not often talked about, but I think obviously critically important for national security. Um, and Atlantic Council is holding an event on the state of uh, the U.S. space industrial base, which is also a very topical issue. Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you, Vago.
And joining us now, as he does on most Mondays, is Sam Bendet, uh, one of the top analysts uh, on the Russian military, as well as its unmanned systems, who is at the Center for Naval Analyses, part of the Crack Russia team uh, there. He is also uh, affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. Sam, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. I, I want to get to the Army 2022 uh, show. Last week, you were kind enough to join us to give us a little bit of a preview as the show was getting underway. Uh, it's now uh, wrapped up. Uh, but I have to start off with uh, the assassination of Alexander Dugan's uh, daughter. There was a car bombing. Obviously, uh, Dugan is somebody who was called Putin's brain and somebody who was seen as a close ally uh, and one of the architects of, of Russian nationalism as uh, Vladimir Putin and his uh, inner circle uh, see it. There's a lot of debate and discussion, and I know that we're only about 24 hours in, in, into this attack. You know, there's one side, uh, Sam, that says, oh, my God, the Russians are going to go Grozny uh, now and, and stories in The New York Times and elsewhere saying that, you know, Ukrainians are sort of girding for an attack. The Russians have blamed the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians say we didn't have anything to do with it. Um, from, from your perspective, does this dynamically change the situation in any way? or would change Russian strategy in any way, uh, ultimately, because there is a sense that that Russia is bogging down uh, and that the fight itself is bogged down, as we've discussed for some weeks. Well, we're still, like you said, 24 hours into this uh, incident, and there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we don't know about whether Dugin himself was targeted or whether his daughter was targeted or whether both of them were targeted for one reason or another because they were supposed to travel in the same vehicle. Dugan changed the vehicles at the last moment and he followed his daughter in another car. So I think that's probably a question worth exploring itself. But the biggest question right now and the one that will be debated for a long time, especially in the Western policy circles, is the extent of Dugan's influence on the current decision-making. Certainly at one point, he was very influential. The question remains whether he or his daughter are still influential now. And what they say actually reverberates throughout the government to the point where it drives policy. Again, a lot of questions about that. And these are the type of uh, issues that will be explored. There are hints right now that uh, from the government, at least, that if um, Ukraine had anything to do with it, um, then that matter would be investigated further. Again, Russian government isn't pointing fingers yet, but a lot of Russian um, Commentators, especially on Telegram and in other outlets, are um, sort of fuming over over this killing and uh, or rather assassination and uh, what will happen afterwards. Again, more questions than answers, but uh, this is certainly a uh, um, this is certainly going to impact uh, Russian um, nationalist circles and um, and and those uh, who are really nationalistic about the way their country is doing right now and uh, the position of Russia with respect to the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, and, and how much uh, extra capacity does Russia have uh, to uh, act out? I mean, we've seen, uh, again, a bogging down of operations. Ukrainians have had some gains in part because of the more modern weapons that they're uh, getting. But I mean, again, the battlefield has remained relatively static. So, I mean, even as everybody calls a nationalist, call on Putin and say, hey, you have to do more, you're being a wuss, how much more gas is in that tank for Russia to get? You know what I mean? I mean, if, if Russia had the capacity, they would be using it. So aside from sort of reprisal attacks, I mean, obviously, you know, brutality is always a, a lever that the Russians pull and pull as often as they can get away with. But I mean, is there, a, you know, a sense that they, there is actually that much extra capacity here to to do more 
um, you know, or would it be sort of like, hey, we've got to do something. Here's an array of actions that show us that show the world that we, we still have capacity. I mean, how do you think this sort of plays out as, as you look down a week, right? Because the Russians seem to have already suggested that they're accusing the Ukrainians of this, uh, even if it's not, you know, yet, you know, sort of an official uh, c- conclusion. Well, that remains to be seen. Obviously, Russian military is exhausted, but it also has demonstrated the capacity to fight on and uh, it could do so for quite a while, as has been indicated in multiple analyses. Uh, again, the question remains what the Russian government decides to do about this incident, how it's going to frame it, how it's going to phrase it. Uh, there are already discussions uh, that this may be sort of an internal Russian um, competition among some of the elites over the narrative um, th- uh, in Russia's foreign policy and narrative uh, in Russia's conduct during the war. So again, uh, depending on how the Russian government decides to frame and present this to the public, what it concludes, uh, we may see uh, different types of actions taking place, including possibly um, forcing the FSB to do some kind of targeted attacks on uh, or in response to this. Again, a lot will depend on how the Russian government is going to conclude what actually happened here, whether this was an unfortunate uh, accident with a vehicle or whether this was an actual assassination attempt that succeeded. Uh, and uh, according to the BBC, as we record this, Russia's security service said Ukraine plotted the killing of uh, Dugin's uh, daughter, uh, uh, Daria. Let me uh, move to uh, the topic of, uh, b- before we get to the army, um, the Ukrainians uh, struck the headquarters of the uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet. Uh, and this sort of ties into uh, the new Russian uh, naval uh, strategy. Ultimately, I mean, aside from uh, the timing of the strike coming when the new commander of the Black Sea Fleet was assigned and the new maritime strategy or naval strategy is out, Sam. Just put everything uh, into context where the Russians are right now, Black Sea Fleet-wise, and then I promise we can talk, um, spend the rest of the time talking about the army. Well, the attack on the Black Sea Fleet demonstrates that Ukrainians still have the capacity to strike at Russian positions deep inside uh, the Russian territory. In other words, uh, Russian uh, Black Sea Fleet was supposed to have plenty of defenses on hand, at least according to multiple commentators, and probably every logical expectation, uh, such as electronic warfare, counter UAS batteries, air defense batteries that should have identified and uh, ultimately shut down the UAV that uh, struck the building. There are competing narratives right now, uh, especially on, on Telegram, where a lot of this was recorded and there's a lot of evidence posted. Obviously, uh, many are saying that the UAV succeeded in penetrating Russian air defenses and uh, struck its intended target, but didn't cause a lot of damage. Russians are actually saying that they, in fact, shut down this UAV with small arms. And by the time it crashed on the building, it really was not presenting any harm. But the question remains, what happened to the air defense electronic warfare coverage that was supposed to interdict Ukrainian UAVs? And this is not the first such attack by a Ukrainian drone penetrated deep into the Russian territory. There have been cross-border attacks before, and this demonstrates Ukrainians possibly probing Russian air defenses, the quality of these air defenses for uh, subsequent action. Uh, This, of course, is embarrassing for the Russian Black Sea Fleet in the sense that they were unable to interdict um, a system that they claimed before the war they should be able to deal with. This was not a very small UAV. It was fairly sizable. 
plenty of eyewitness accounts actually recorded it. Uh, questions are now going to sort of swirl whether this was a Ukrainian PD-1 drone or whether this was a modified Chinese uh, civilian drone that you can actually purchase online for just uh, under $10,000. Uh, but the uh, maritime doctrine and its, uh, its text ultimately is the sort of the overarching guiding document. It spells out the main direction for development of the Russian Navy for the next several decades. And while it spells out the United States and NATO as the actual adversary and the challenger to the Russian maritime influence, it doesn't necessarily um, say anything specific, not in the sense of uh, sort of what technologies must protect specific fleet and uh, what technologies must be developed in response to specific uh, types of military conflicts that Russia wages right now. Having said that, of course, there is an emphasis on the development of uh, naval vessels, on aircraft carriers, on development of uh, unmanned systems uh, for maritime and aerial domains that the Russian Navy can use, development of better communication, and other technologies uh, for, uh, for better command and control between the uh, Russian naval assets in port and at sea. But uh, as you have indicated, the attack uh, basically came at a time when, uh, or rather during the time when Russian defenses ought to be um, secure enough or they should be present to a certain level to be able to deal with threats like a small UAV that is actually uh, trying to attack a fairly sophisticated and important target. Um, and so these are the questions that a lot of people are asking right now, especially Russian commentators on Telegram. Where are the air defenses? Where are the EW systems? Uh, why are why uh, all these eyewitness videos uh, show so many people shooting in the air uh, and the drone keeps on flying until it actually hits the building? So again, the maritime doctrine is the overarching document that spells out the main direction for the Russian naval development. And this incident demonstrates that Ukrainians are still capable of attacking uh, Russian uh, assets far uh, sort of beyond the line of contact. Uh, and so this doesn't necessarily mean a lot of good things going forward uh, should the Russian defenses or should the Russian positions be so stretched out along the southern line that there are significant gaps in defense that could be exploited. I will add one more thing. There's additional evidence um, in the Russian media that this drone may have been launched from inside the Ukraine. And so there's an ongoing investigation whether this vehicle crossed the border and flew um, from deep inside Ukraine or whether it was actually launched from Crimea and therefore its short flight duration was not enough for the Russian air defenses to act mm. properly. And if it was launched from inside Crimea, then again, it indicates that Ukrainian forces and efforts can be successful in operating behind the Russian lines to cause significant damage. Finally, uh, a lot of commentators are saying that the damage to the Black Sea Fleet wasn't material or wasn't physical, but rather psychological. Uh, and because the air raid sirens and because of shooting in the air, a lot of people in, uh, in Sevastopol are on edge and are very stressed. And this may have also been the intended effect uh, for launching this particular UAV attack to cause significant psychological stress to the Russian military and the civilians, not just the physical stress. And, and we should say, right, that that also comes uh, on the heels of 
the uh, other Crimea attack uh, the week uh, before the destroyed aircraft and ammunition dumps and, and what have you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Army 2022. Uh, what were the big news items? Obviously, was uh, the announcement uh, of the uh, second S-400 battery that would go uh, to Turkey. Um, Russia saying it's a new deal. The Turks saying, no, it was covered under the original contract. What else was announced that you thought was interesting over the course of the week? I will mention three things that were rather interesting, and a lot of these actually came from the Russian media itself. At the closing ceremony on August 21st, uh, Defense Minister Shoigu said that there was uncertainty whether to hold uh, this year's army event. And this was sort of coached in terms of COVID, that uh, Russian military decided that if uh, COVID did not stop the army expo in 2020, and in 2021, it certainly wasn't going to stop it in 2022. But I think there are some sort of subtle hints here that he indicated that Russia's involvement in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the ongoing war, the sanctions and everything that resulted after February 24th may have uh, led to a lot of debates within the MLD whether or not to hold the event this year uh, because of a lot of security concerns or other concerns. Another interesting uh, indication was that Russian military commentators actually stepped in front of sort of the media narrative and said, well, nothing was really new at the expo in terms of there were no revolutionary breakthroughs. What Russian military has showcased are existing systems, modernized systems, systems that are going through certain uh, levels of refinement uh, with an obvious reference to the war in Ukraine, but there wasn't anything uh, revolutionary on display. And I think that was sort of down to maybe assuage any concerns that uh, this army expo may have been sort of rather bland when, when compared to the previous ones, especially those that held uh, between 2017 and 2019. And then finally, the big announcement was that the Ministry of Defense signed over $8.7 billion worth of contracts, uh, military contracts with Russian defense enterprises. And uh, this type of expo is usually used as a platform to showcase the scale of these type of contracts signed. In other words, a lot of them were sort of prepped in advance and didn't just happen during the expo. Um, but uh, again, the platform, um, the Army 2022 platform was used to showcase that the Russian defense industry is still healthy, can still operate, can still handle large contracts in the face of Western sanctions. And uh, as Russia is, uh, is involved in the war that is depleting um, its, uh, some of its resources. Uh, and, and just to follow up on that, right, I mean, aside from the Turkish S-400 order, what were some of the big deals? Because you said that, the, you know, there were uh, dozens and dozens, uh, scores, in fact, of delegations there uh, from countries around the world that actually do rely on, on Russia from their arms. Talk to us about some of the bigger deals that we saw over the course of the week. Well, uh, so Russian MOD uh, says that 85 international delegations have attended and a total of 1.9 million people have visited the Army 22 uh, Expo in Moscow and throughout the country. We have to note that this is a national event. And while the main sort of course is outside of Moscow at the Patriot State Park, there are other Army 2022 events that were held throughout the country in cities large and small. And so they were uh, also exhibitions and events and all of that kind of drew together 1.9 million people. Uh, it, it's not clear exactly whether um, any other uh, country has signed any specific uh, deal or, uh, right now of any uh, major consequence, but there was obviously a lot of attention from Russian allies. 
Um, I will say this, one of the biggest announcements during the expo was that the Russian Ministry of Defense has finally established an artificial intelligence department to help guide the development of artificial intelligence for the military. And this was first announced last year. We highlighted this development in our AI and autonomy in Russia report that CNA Russia team released in May of 2021. And we speculated back then that this department may have similar functions to the DOD as Jake or CDAO, but it would probably have additional functions like actually dealing with the military budgets that, you know, that is the, this AI department would be able to allocate funding and resources to certain projects. And uh, there are also indications that this may be true because just a few days ago, one of the officials tasked with leading this department said that they are uh, imposing strict requirements on what kind of projects can actually pass um, MOD scrutiny because it was indicated that plenty of companies and organizations are submitting their proposal and just put the words artificial intelligence in front of it so that they could be part of the military funding pool. And so uh, Russian MOD wants to streamline what kind of projects are funded that have artificial intelligence uh, included. And yesterday, actually, there was an announcement that uh, the MOD is looking at Ukraine very closely and is using the experience in Ukraine to help develop smarter and more intelligent intelligent weapons. Uh, No further details were available. And of course, we can sort of uh, unpack this statement for hours, given the the performance of the Russian military in the very beginning of the war, a few months into the war, and what it's doing now. But I think this was one of the major announcements. And concurrent with that was an announcement by Deputy Prime Minister Chernyshenko that Russian government will establish a national artificial intelligence center to help the industry, the business, and the academia develop artificial intelligence for the country. So we have sort of two main centers, one in the military, one in, uh, in the civilian sectors that are supposed to help Russia uh, achieve a certain level of development with artificial intelligence. Of course, a lot remains to be seen. Uh, what would happen a few months um, later or a few months since with the Russian economy, with, uh, with the impact of sanctions and how the government uh, will or will not be able to successfully sort of shepherd a lot of these efforts along. But these announcements were made at probably the most public platform imaginable. And so, uh, you know, obviously the MOD and the government are now going to be held to account uh, that they are pledging resources and they are establishing centralized uh, departments to manage artificial intelligence development at a time when AI in general is getting a lot of attention from the world's military and uh, civilian leaders. And, and Sam, we've got about uh, less than 30 seconds left. UAV uh, developments, given though that is what's most firmly in your wheelhouse. There were several interesting developments during Army 2022 that specifically related to Russia's involvement in Ukraine. Uh, one was the Zala uh, manufactured quadrocopter that the manufacturer claimed is supposed to start replacing Chinese-made DJI drones. Another was the uh, Aduvanchik or Dandelion Uh, quadrocopter for dropping bombs um, during high winds and in incremental weather. And another quadrocopter manufactured by the Russians uh, is a a harassing drone. Its mission isn't necessarily to target the adversary, but to drop bombs near their position so that um, this type of activity would generate significant stress for those who are under the attack. 
And so the psychological part of this war is now sort of squarely at, at the center of uh, quadrocopter UAV development. There was a lot of counter UAS technology on display, technology that deals with uh, UAVs, both um, uh, in, uh, in, in single missions and in swarms. Um, th there was also a small foldable quadrocopter that was manufactured by one of Russian defense enterprises that can function as a kamikaze drone. Again, with uh, an eye towards widespread use of DJI drones made by China and Russia's desire to start replacing and phasing them out in favor of domestic technology. And of course, Russian Army 2022 Forum is a platform for big displays, sort of uh, very sort of public displays of some big technology that Russians are working on. And so this week, this past week, Russian MOD uh, showcased a uh, robotic version of the BMP-3 uh, infantry fighting vehicle. Um, it was optionally manned uh, with a new platform called Sinitsa that could be installed on an existing BMP-3. And uh, Russia's defense enterprises have showcased a new submarine concept called Arcturus that had a complement of several unmanned underwater vehicles, uh, including Suragat unmanned underwater vehicle that was in development for many years and is supposed to mimic a friendly or an adversary submarine to sort of uh, fool the, uh, the attacking force. So a lot was sort of uh, old, but there was plenty of new as well, especially with an eye towards Russia's war in Ukraine. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much, Fargo.